I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. Welcome once again, Matt Dixon here with the Purple Patch Podcast, and this week, something a little different. We're going to be doing the first in a series of living case studies, as we're calling them, real athletes who have successfully integrated sport into life and achieved some great personal results with a little bit of -of out-of-the-box thinking and approaches. We begin this week with a busy executive, Jordan Oida, mid-40s, family man, based in Manhattan with a high-pressure job in financial services, an ex-collegiate football player turned into endurance athlete. His story? Well, a little bit of a potpourri of endurance fun, with Olympic distance, half Ironman triathlons, 10Ks, half marathons, and marathons. We're going to explore his evolution in training and how he managed to successfully navigate, in fact, excel in two marathon events in two weeks. Yes, that's right, just two marathons in two weeks, all off a recipe of never doing more than three runs a week. You're going to learn about the benefits of swimming and biking for your run performance and how we turn traditional marathon training on its head in order to integrate training successfully into Jordan's life and still yield performance. There's plenty of lessons in today's show, but before we dive into his story, let's listen to the jingle. We like the way he thinks, serious with a wink. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek, it's the dictionary. Yes, the word of the week this week, and it is buy-in. Buy-in. What do I mean by that? Well, this is what is needed when you get a coach. A complete commitment to the program without losing your own ownership over the journey. We always talk about consistency for performance, but a consistent relationship can be the bedrock that your own efforts produce high yield. Of course, first, finding the right coach is key. And I think that you have to realize that it's a relationship. And in that relationship, you must be able to trust and also communicate with your partner in performance. Do you believe in their mindset? Is their style aligned with yours? What is the culture that they're creating with their athletes and the community that they foster? I really encourage you to do your homework and talk to others. In endurance sports, there are some great examples of really valuable long-term relationships. Des Linden, from 2006 to now 2018, this year when she has her breakout and finally wins the Boston Marathon, she's had the same coach. Yes, Des is coming onto the show in the next couple of weeks and we'll be digging into a coach-athlete relationship then. But across the sport as well, Brent McMahon, a great Canadian long-time triathlete, an Olympian, an Ironman champion, been with the same coach throughout the course of his whole career. And even within the Purple Patch family, Jesse Thomas, Meredith Kessler, Sarah Piampiano, committed to the calls, committed to the relationship, and developed to world-class over several years of development. In fact, it's enough to say that not many of the greats have jumped around to many coaches, simply looking for the grass is greener on the other side. So often it's built on a platform of development, and you should be no different. Ultimately, consistency and application equals results. And so yes, sometimes it's time to move on and change your coach, but you need to ensure you do it for the right reasons and not before you've exhausted all the relationship has to offer. 
Pinball coaching is seldom the pathway to success. And that is why the word of the week is buy-in. Now, let's get on with the meat and potatoes. All right, guys, yes, the meat and potatoes today. And we have got today for us a living case study of performance within a time-starved life. But not only that, I want to dive into today a quest for doing two marathons in two weeks on only three runs a week. Sounds like a paradox. How can someone get ready for this? But today, Purple Patch Athlete, excited to have you on the show. Jordan Oida, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The reason I I wanted to have you on outside of you being a a very nice bloke and one of my coached athletes was, uh, was I think your story that you've, you've gone on over the last couple of years as it relates to endurance athletics, both, both Ironman 70.3 Olympic distance racing in triathlon, but then also half marathon and marathon. I think that you are genuinely a living case study uh, that can hopefully shift some listeners' lens on what it takes to be performance ready. And, uh, and I think you're a great indication of, of supporting habits and a lens on performance all within a time-starved life. So let me give you, uh, let, let me give listeners a, a quick dirty bio of you. So you're based in New York and real New York, New York, New York, right in Manhattan, married. You've got two boys. 12 and 15. And for the last 23 years, you've been working at Cantor Fitzgerald as the managing director of the foreign exchange trading desk. So busy living, it sounds like. Uh, isn't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> so, so why don't we dive into it? And look, let, let's start as I like to do with some context. And t- tell me a little bit about, about you, where you grew up, your family, your education. Sure. So I grew up in New Jersey, um, and then I moved to London, actually, after college. College, I went to Hobart College up in Geneva, New York. And um, after college, I came back. I worked in New York for a year, and I lived in London for, for about seven years, from 95 to 2003, um, working the same job that I'm doing now, foreign exchange, and then came back to New York and have lived in Manhattan since uh, – since 2003. Okay. So it's, it's been a life that has been wrapped around one, well, not just uh foreign exchange, but, but with one company as well. Yeah. That's right. Fantastic. And, and what about athletics sporting background? Cause what we're going to talk about today, I think that some people just won't believe or, or they're going to think that you're some genetic freak. That's a, a real outlier. So I think it's important to understand your athletic history, your sporting background from high school all the way up through sort of college to now. Sure. So, you know, it's funny because I don't come to the sport from the traditional triathlon background. Um, you know, I was not a swimmer in, in high school or college. Um, I had no interest in biking and, you know, running was, was pretty low on my priority list as well. Uh, my, my sport was actually football. I played, uh, played American football all through high school and all through college. So, um, you know, I wasn't the traditional size football player. I mean, I'm five, nine, but I, I weighed then around a bit over 200, probably about 210. So kind of short and stocky. Yeah. Um, 
and just to give you an idea now, you know, I'm obviously still five, nine, but, uh, I weigh 175 now. So still not, you know, the traditional, a light, I would say a light athlete, you know, I'm not, I'm not heavy, but I'm not, you know, I'm not five, nine, one fifty, which seems to be, you know, more of a, a typical, let's say runner's build as opposed to a triathlete's build. Yeah, absolutely. And painting a picture, I mean, you still, it it is uh, it doesn't surprise me that you came from a from a football background. I mean, you still have the physique. It's not five nine one seventy five with a pot belly. It's uh, it's very chest heavy. Let's call it that. So um, yeah. I think it's important for the context of what we're going to talk about. And uh, in fact, when I first met you, Jordan, I thought that you were obsessed with your as much obsessed with your biceps as you were with going fast, but. But that's not true. <laughs> what about endurance sports and uh, and particularly sort of as you, your journey into getting into these crazy things like half marathons and marathons and triathlons? Right. So, so as I mentioned, and I think that the reason that I thought it was important to give the London background is that after I graduated from college, um, you know, I worked in New York for a short period of time. And then when I was in London, I, I literally um, really did no working out at all. Uh, you know, I did did a little bit of yoga. Sometimes I swam, you know, for 20 minutes, just, just to say that I did something basically sure. moved back to New York. Um, and you know, was, was still that same 205, 210 pounds, but there was no muscle. It was, you know, I just was, it was out of shape. So I decided first, you know, look, I want to get back into shape. And, um, you know, I started going to the gym, I started working out and, you know, about five or six years later, I mean, it's, it's, it, for me, it became boring because I wasn't competing in every in anything, and that had been my whole history. And you know, for football, like I would spend a ton of time in the weight room and do whatever I was asked to do because I had a goal. And so I thought to myself, I really need to get a goal. So I started running, you know, five Ks and ten Ks, and you know, I wasn't doing anything spectacular. You know, it wasn't anything fast, maybe eight and a half, nine minute pace, but it just was to be competitive, just to have something on the books. And I think that, you know, just given the, you know, the way that I'm wired and I'd say the way that a lot of triathletes, athletes are wired, you know, after doing those for about a year or two, I started to think, you know, well, maybe I could run a half marathon. I mean, why not? Right. Sure. And, so you know, that's, you know, it's kind of got into the half, did the half marathon. And um, this, I think, was probably maybe 2006, 2007. And I liked it. And. Um, the other thing that, you know, that I should add is that my father-in-law is a triathlete or was a triathlete. He's in his seventies now, still in great shape, but he, um, is a Kona Ironman of 86 and 87. And so, you know, when he used to talk about doing the triathlons and running marathons, like we, we, my wife and I used to like laugh about it behind his back. But, you know, as I started to, you know, progress a little bit, he said to me, well, you know, you like the half marathon, you like running a little bit. He's like, you know, but you can't just run all the time because that'll, you know, put a, put some pressure on your body. It's like maybe you should think about getting a bike. And and I think and I would say after that, the rest was kind of history. You know, I started riding a bike and running a bit. Um, and then you know, I just did my first Olympic triathlon, and it was kind of the same thing. You know, I liked the Olympic triathlon, and I decided, um, can I go further? And you know, and that's kind of what my first half Ironman was in uh 2009 and, and actually interestingly enough i knew nothing about 
any of the courses and I just figured I was going to be needing to train more. And at this point I had hired a coach in New York. So I said to my wife, you, you pick the race. I, I don't care as long as you're, you know, you're willing to put up with, you know, some extra training. And so I did St. Croix and, and, you know, any of the triathletes out there know that St. Croix is probably the toughest half Ironman that you can, you can find. Uh, <laughs> maybe there's tougher now, but at the time, I mean, this was a grueling course. Yeah, and it um, sounds appealing. You know, that, that, sorry, continue. No, it's just sorry. I said it sounds appealing as St. Croix in the Caribbean, but at the same time, it's it's absolutely brutal. It has a hill in it. It's called the Beast, and you know I remember the race director saying, you know, that you won't really start the race until you climb the Beast. He's like, forget about the swim in the first twenty miles. Wait till you climb, and you know it's and it's hot. You know, you're running on a golf course. It's open and it's hot. So. But, you know, it's, again, it was, you know, like anything else, it was an, an, an introduction to a further distance and, you know, got me to be more excited about the sport. And eventually in 2010, I did my first Ironman in Lake Placid and kind of the, you know, that's it's pretty much that's the history of it. And the only other thing I would say is that in training for these races, um, you know, I like to do all three sports. You know, I do enjoy the triathlons, but I also like to run and that's kind of what what brings us back to what we're discussing today which is the marathons exactly and 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 i think that the your background is important for context because you do have some sort of proverbial miles in the legs and we have to acknowledge that but you've now you've now been with myself purple and with purple patch for a couple of years Uh, obviously you have a, a history in the sport before that and um uh you know what we don't want to do today is make this a, a huge testimonial for purple patch but we've got to go on the the historical side so when you, when you reached out to me what what was the catalyst you've been doing the sport for a while why reach out what 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 was the thing that you were looking for that you were struggling with within the context of the sport and or life right so i i think it was there was a few things so um the first thing was that i race a lot now through the Ironman Executive Challenge Program. And there are a few athletes that you coach who are involved in the program who I, you know, I saw, you know, I I actually obviously was in the program for a few years before, you know, we had met each other, but not trained through each other. And, um, you know, I started seeing that they were having some success. So that, you know, that sparked some interest, but, but for me, it was, it was basically two things. The first thing was, is that, um, I was finding that the the coaching that I had, although it got me into great shape, it was leaving me always feeling that I wasn't completing, you know, like my workout would be written and, you know, he would say, get, get, do as much as you can, get to as much as you can of it if you can't finish it all. And it it was, it's not a nice feeling to feel like you're not completing all your workouts. I mean, that's the way that we triathletes roll. You put something in front of us and say you have to do that, and we want to do it. And so it really, with with my work, with my children, it just, it was becoming too much. You know, in the beginning, I kind of accepted it because I thought this is the only way you can do it. You either need to put in, you know, 15 to 20 hours or you can't do these kind of events. And I really enjoyed doing the events. And so, you know, speaking to the guys in the XC program, they're like, wow, you know, I don't know if you necessarily need to do all that. And then the second thing was, is that I was coming off the heels of a, of a poor marathon in New York. 
And, you know, I was starting to think that, you know, perhaps maybe I was burning out a little bit because I, you know, the thing is, is my job requires me to get to the office early. So, you know, my normal wake up time is anytime between four and four 30. Mm-hmm. And I do that, you know, five days a week and you know, sometimes six days a week, you know, depending if I want to get a long ride in on the weekends and also spend time with the family. So, you know, when you factor in the sleep deprivation, which, which you and I have talked about, um, you know, all those things, I was, you know, starting to go down a path that I didn't want to go down. Sure. And, you know, then that's what, what made me reach out to you because I thought I want to continue with the sport long term. And I knew that the way that I was training for the events, although I was very fit, was not going to work for me long term. And, and how about historically with your training before Purple Patch, uh, setting up your training? Because you, as you've mentioned, you did marathons and Olympic distance triathlons. It's, it's quite a spread away and they were all thrown into the year. Yeah. So how did you, how did you go about it? Would you, would you go about, and I guess the question is when you would be training for these marathons, would you go sort of all run and put that hat on and then transfer and say, okay, now I'm going to go for sort of triathlon. I finish with my marathon. How did you set it up? No, it was more, it was more the sense that I was still trying to train for, for everything, but it was almost as if you would put a marathon program where you're running, you know, you have your 22 mile runs, your 18 mile runs, um, your speed work during the week, and then also trying to do, you know, two hour bikes to three hour bikes here. You know, I mean, the other, the other sports definitely, I think suffered a little because I did become more run focused. Um, but also the hours that I felt like I had to put in because I was trying to do, as I said, to literally, like if you look at a, a, a marathon program and you look at a triathlon program, I was trying to do both. Yeah, trying to, it's the classic thing. I've, I've got to get ready for this marathon. And, and I assume that that for you, the emotional tie was hitting the 20 mile run, hitting the 22 mile run. That was probably a big pull. So you were forcing a regular classic marathon training program and then doing a little bit of swim and biking, trying to force that as well and just ending up with fatigue ultimately. Yeah. And so when you, uh, so when, I just was just saying, you factor that in with a busy job, very busy job and getting up every day at four, there was, you know, something had to give. Or and, there had to I, be, a, yeah. And there I, had to be a radical change basically. Yeah. Right. If so. I wanted to continue to enjoy these events, but also to, you know, realize that, you know, my life, I, I couldn't continue on down that kind of training path. So, so let's come to our initial conversations quickly. And, and when we started, do, do you remember your, our initial sort of chat, your goals when we first started together? Yeah, I, I actually, I do because, because as I mentioned, you know, so I was coming to you off the heels of a disappointing um, New York marathon and, you know, I wanted to qualify to race Boston because I think Boston is a great marathon. I had done it once before and so I came to you and I think the first thing I said to you was, look, I, I, I want to continue doing my traditional marathons. I want to, I want to be focused on qualifying for the Ironman, uh, half champ, half, uh, Ironman 70.3 world championship, but I also really want to go to Boston. So what do you think about me running a marathon in February? Now I'm coming to you in December and then also, you know, preparing 
for, I believe it was Puerto, the Puerto Rico 70.3 and also the um, Machu Blanc 70.3. Those were the two races that I was going to use to try to qualify. I think that year was Austria. I'm not 100% positive. And you said, okay, I'm with you on it. I, I hear your goals. But I remember you saying, look, if you're going to run a marathon pretty much out of the gates for the new season, you don't want to blow up your whole season. So we'll, we'll train for this, but it's not going to be the traditional training for a marathon. And so, you know, I figured, hey, I'm coming to you. I'm asking for a change. So, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, went with a little bit of faith. But it was definitely. <laughs> A lot of faith. Let's not say a little. <laughs> you you got you got to change. That's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I think you could. Sorry, I was going to say I think you could talk to it a little bit because obviously I came to you, and you know you and you had to basically develop a program for me that was was quite unusual, quite different than than what most of your other athletes are asking for. You know, I, I presume. Yeah, it, it. I mean, it absolutely was not a a regular seasonal progression. You know, you typically you'll go through what we call postseason, and will be really sort of foundational so far as preparing the body to train. And we were doing two things at once. We were, how do I train you for a marathon in February to get you to your goal, which was to get to go to Boston, and um, at the same time not disassemble the chance to actually have athlete development. And so, you know, I think the best way is, is lean into, and this is going to be the substance of much of what we talk about today, but lean into the cross-pollination benefits of swimming and cycling to help ready us for running. And so by my memory, I think we were running never more than uh, probably about three times a week, yeah? Right. Never um, more than three times a week. And I think the main point that you that you had to sell me on that you know that I had to believe in was you said you've just done the the New York Marathon that's in you know early November so that's going to be your long run you did it and so you know we basically discussed that I think that I was not going to run more than fourteen miles to train for the next marathon which was going to be uh, President's Day weekend in February. And so I, you know, I kind of had to go, as I said, with some faith about that, because now we're looking, you know, November, December, we were looking at about three or three and a half months of to train for the marathon where I thought we were going to, you know, start from scratch again, you know, do our 18s, do our 20, do the 22 and also get some long runs during the week and, you know, and hit the speed work and, and really try to do four runs a week is what I was thinking. And so I think when we, when we speak to, it, we have to say two things. One is that it was never more than three runs a week. And also the hours that I was running was probably closer to four hours a week than, you know, four to four to five, but probably closer to four. And and the key to this is in isolation, that would not get you ready for your, um, uh, your February marathon. But what we had in support of that was very consistent and not massive volume either, but very consistent swimming for cardiovascular conditioning and then cycling mostly on the trainer because winter months in, in New York, obviously, for muscular resilience and further conditioning. And, and I think that was the place. And, and where you ended up arriving at that marathon was, in my mind, globally very fit, with just enough running and some strength-based running there uh, to be resilient and, most importantly, not fatigued. 
And that, that was the first thing that I wanted you to feel was, was a lack of fatigue, not just from training stress, but more importantly, the biggest challenge for most amateur athletes, which is life stress and that, that necessary sleep deprivation. So we went through. So, so very quickly, how did that marathon go? We all know the answer, I think, but, uh, right. but so, it wasn't, yes. wasn't a bad marathon, was it? No, it was, uh, you know, it was, I think it was, you know, 311 or 312, which, you know, for me, I needed 315. And, um, you know, it was great. You know, I, I, I got to the starting line. I felt fresh, you know, and, and I also, you know, when I was, when I look at it further down that year. So when I started looking back at what I had done in May and June, because we had, you know, I, I know that if you look at a traditional program that you'll, that you'll write, you know, there, there is a lot of swim in the beginning of the year because we want to, build that aerobic engine, but not burn the athlete out. And there, you know, you do the bikes and the, you know, the, the, you know, the other thing that, um, that I hadn't done much of until, uh, you know, we started working together was the low RPM work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, grinding out at, you know, it's at 65 and really getting the muscles to a place again, without, you know, without basically burning the legs out. And, you know, and I started to, to think that some of the feeling that I would have, you know, when I would, you know, push myself a little bit in the swim or, you know, at, at the end of a, of a solid bike ride, you know, I, I could say, you know, that's kind of where I'm going to feel as well in the, when I'm running. And so that, and that's kind of, I would say that's where I started to be sold on. It was, you know, when I started the training, you know, in December and in January, I felt myself getting fit. And not, and my legs weren't taking a pounding and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sleep deprived. And, and, and I think one, one other thing as well was coming off the backside of that, the rate of recovery, so much of a recovery from whether it's an Ironman or a marathon is often the training that goes into it as well as the event itself. And outside of some muscle soreness, which went away pretty quickly, your bounce back from the single day stressor of marathon was incredibly quick because it was only a few weeks before you went down and did a half Ironman in Puerto Rico, yeah, I think by memory, um, uh, where you qualified for the world championships, yeah? That's correct. So, you know, I, I remember reading somewhere, and I forget who wrote it, but probably a lot of people have written it, that if the training is right, the recovery will be right. And, you know, that, and that was one of the other things that I found from this program was, you know, after I had done the New York marathon and, and just the marathons that I had done before you and I started working together, you know, I, I would be trashed for, you know, like my legs would be thrashed for, you know, a week or so. And, and um, you know, coming to, to this type of workout, my, my legs were not thrashed. My legs actually felt pretty fresh. Um, and, you know, when I, it was, I think it was about, literally it was about a month later that I, you know, that I towed the line at the Puerto Rico 70.3. And, you know, I had another great race that day, um, you know, on a qualifying for uh, the world championships. And so, you know, it was kind of nice. We had all the goals achieved <laughs> before April, which is sometimes when people start their, their season. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was all done. Well, well, let, let's go outside of as well the training because I think that there were some important interventions for you, particularly around uh, eating. Yeah, and uh, and when you were fueling, uh, w with also an, a necessity, we felt to shift body composition, shift body weight a little bit while we're never obsessed with weight. 
and of course energy management why don't you talk about that because how that affected you i think was was pretty positive from a day-to-day basis right so you know i i I think at that point i um you know i knew that i could i would want to i think i was weighing about 182 to 185 at the time and you know i knew that i wanted to be lighter and i was trying to figure out a way that i could incorporate you know, some kind of dietary changes without being on like a restrictive diet, because I knew that that wouldn't work for me. And especially because in in my line of work, we do a lot of entertaining. So we're out at night, there's, you know, we're going out to dinner and it's, it's, it's difficult to stick to, you know, let's say the the healthiest of diets. Mm -hmm. But I thought to myself, there must be some changes that I can make, um, that, you know, will help me achieve this. And, you know, I think that you and I discussed, you know, the first thing, and I think that, you know, it was kind of, you had done it yourself as well, which you said, uh, you know, really limit the, you know, the amount of beers or drinks that you have during the week to, you know, if you have one, it's okay. And the other thing was that we adjusted when I ate my carbs. So it wasn't necessarily like you have to eat this, you can't eat this, you can't eat that. It just was, you want to have carbs, have them in the morning, have them for breakfast. That was the other thing is that I was just having a shake in the morning and I think you said to me, you know, you have to eat real food, you know, eat real food for breakfast, have, you know, have some carbs, have your carbs at lunch. And then, and then in in the evening, you know, have your protein, have your salad. So it wasn't like if I was going to a steakhouse, I could have a steak, I could have a salad. I just wasn't maybe pounding the potatoes as well. You know, wasn't having the mashed potatoes. So that would be like a perfect example. And so in my mind, it really wasn't, you know, giving up anything. It just was, rearranging when things were being eaten and you know it was was very successful for me and and actually i found that i lost you know where i am now about 174 175 so i lost you know seven eight pounds that and it came off reasonably quickly you know within those adjustments within two to three months i think a part of that is um obviously that that habitual intervention and and we weren't turning you into a monk we were shifting right. habits there uh, and then the second thing is i think that your body that that happening quite quickly is mostly because of the reduction of overstress and so the, the key point me, me falling into coaching mode a little bit here but if we had have just kept your training the same and kept you overstressed we might have done that nutritional intervention at a singular basis but it might not have had the same results but the fact that we shifted your training, reduced reduced the training load, made it a little bit more structured for you, uh, and then in in that the body was like, oh, thank you very much, and went down to let's let's call it a, a more suitable level. Right. So so before we dive into this year, which uh, which I want to and uh, and I think is the main piece because that the, this year we did something a little crazier which we'll get to which is two marathons in two weeks uh, not the purple patch way by the way although we're going to talk about it <laughs> but um but headline news on the training so y- you ended up uh, the intervention that we had we had uh, less training hours uh, what why don't, why don't you actually just talk about this to, to me the biggest change in your total approach to training from pre us working together till following with the way that we structured the week, the total hours. I just want to go back to the headline news a little bit because I think this is interesting. Sure. So, you know, I think that, 
if, if you look at my overall program, it really doesn't vary much from, a, a tr I would say, a traditional program in the sense that, I, as we discussed, I didn't want to give up the ability to train for the bike and the, and the swim and sacrifice that to, you know, to, to do this other hobby, which is to run these marathons. And, you know, I, and I, and I think that I brought to you the number of hours that I thought I could train a week, which was about 10 to 12 hours. Um, and sometimes less, sometimes just eight. And I felt, you know, confident in the sense that I gave you that information. You came back to me with a program and, you know, the thing that I really, that really was for me life-changing was the sense that I could hit all the workouts, every program, everything that was written into my program. You know, if you look back and I think a lot of your athletes, we all use the, uh, the training pre peaks and, you know, I've spoken to some of the other triathletes and everybody likes to have their greens and the training peaks and you don't want to have a red and, and, you know, it's silly enough, but it's, but it's, again, it's, it's, you know, the sport can be very mental as well. So if you feel like you're nailing all your workouts, you're not missing workouts, you know, of course, you know, sometimes you wake up and, and, uh, you know, you're feeling a little bit tired or, you know, who, who knows, it could be anything, but you can still perform the workout, maybe not hit all the, you know, the, the intervals, but you're still able to, to complete the workout. And for me, that was, that was, that was really, that was huge for me because then now I'm feeling I'm nailing all my workouts. I'm doing everything that Matt's asked me to do. And my belief is that if I follow his program, then I can do all these events. And, and with that, you know, you see, so you, you have this, what we can call sustainable, the catalyst of consistency. We went over the fact that you were running three times a week to get ready for not just triathlons, but, uh, but your marathons and half marathons the supporting elements of swim and bike how about strength because i think that's been a key thing and look you're you're a big uh, you're a big ex-football player strength's not necessary yet but we've made it central in the program I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you've utilized strength and i think i think you've used strength really in two ways number one a classical strength session but but number two a little bit of a combination really outside of the box using uh, I think the the location is called Ripped in New York City, but you've used a, a run weights combination. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that has been helped you with marathon running. Sure. So, you know, I've always had a weight program, but uh, so, and I think what we decided was that I was doing weights once a week. And last summer, when we when I attended uh, your camp in South Carolina, actually, I remember you know one of the thing one of the pieces that we just that we spoke about was weight training and um you know and i remember it was focused more towards towards you know to, towards women my age you know i'm 45 now uh but also that you know athletes our age 45 getting closer to 50 um should have some kind of weight training program and so um it actually was my wife when she she happened to be sitting in on that that day at the program and she came back and she said, you know, I really think that I need to start adding some uh, some weights into my she, she was doing strictly yoga, no weights and a little bit of running. And so she found this program in New York. It's called Ripped. And what it is, is it's um, it's a 48 minute class. Uh, which does 12 minutes of interval training on the treadmill, 12 minutes of weights. 12 minutes back on the treadmill and then another 12 minutes of weights. And so my thought process was 
I'll give this a try because it could be a second day of lifting weights, but not just a dedicated day of weights. So it's, it, it's the, the weight portion of it. It's, you know, it's uh, dumbbells. It's never more than 20 pounds. So you're not, you know, you're not, you know, taxing yourself in the sense that you're trying to lift heavy weights, but you're doing, you know, it's time. So you're doing as many repetitions as you can. And so I went to the class with her and I thought, wow, this is great. And then of course my thinking was, but I, I need to do, you know, if, if I'm going to use this, especially on like a weekend, I need to do two. And so, you know, I went to the owner and I said, look, I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to stay in the same treadmill. I'm going to do two of these each time I come. He said, fine. You know, you're the only guy who wants to do that. But if you want to do that, that's fine. And then I would run in between the two classes. And so I would get my, you know, hour to hour, 10 minute run and also incorporate the weights. And I think that, you know, the one thing that I found is that when you are lifting any kind of weights, you know, you're doing, even if you're doing air squats in between your runs by the, by the second class or, you know, by the you know the time that I had run, let's say 30 to 40 minutes and done 30 to 40 minutes of weights, it kind of mimicked the way your legs will feel when you're late in a marathon or when you're coming off the bike to do a run. Um, I, I think this is really important here because when I look at athletes from a coach and, and particularly metric head obsessed with uh, training progression, et cetera, et cetera, if we look at the challenge for most triathletes or endurance athletes, if we, if we look at a professional athlete or someone that is not time starved, the, all of the focus is around high degree of specificity, which is always going to be important, that word specificity, but uh, it's all about training load. That's what they have to manage, how much training load, et cetera, et cetera. But for the vast majority of people in the sport, the challenge is actually integration and life stress. And the key is retaining or maintaining the rhythm and intent. And I think having everyone is so obsessed with what pace am I running? What's my power on my bike and everything along those lines. But sometimes really thinking outside of the box. And this was something that it, it checked multiple boxes. You could go and do it with your wife. It was very social. It was accessible. It was in a, a community environment and it gave you, it was enjoyable. And, um, and, and it became a feature of your, your training. And, uh, and I think in a really positive way, we're sort of killing two birds and yeah, from a coach, Hey, it's not highly specific. Would I go and write it in every purple patch program? No, but it was suiting the need and it was facilitating consistency, which I think is, is, is really important for athletes of rhythm and intent being typically more important, getting those baseline habits right more important than exactly what, how many intervals you're doing or how long the intervals are. And that sounds a paradoxical from, from a coach like me, but but it's, it's genuinely true. So, so let's fast forward. Uh, and that first year you had a, you had a great year. I think your, your only poor result of the year was in St. George, which was, uh, freezing cold conditions. And there's something funny about you, Jordan. You're the, you're the antithesis of what you believe. You do very, very well in heat as a big, strong guy, and you do very poorly in cold conditions. And, and St. George was pretty cold. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, and, and so I, I decided to do St. George. I looked at the average temperature. I saw that it's a hot race. It's in the desert, all this, 
And then I, I get the one year that uh, when you climb, when you do the climb in the mountains, when we got to the top there, it was about 35 degrees. And of course, you know, I started the race, it was about 60. So I'm in like a tank top and I'm in my tri shirt and shorts and, you know, in my tri gear and I'm freezing. I mean, I literally was shivering in it. And I remember people coming in off the bike and some people couldn't even put their sneakers on because their hands were so cold. And so from, and, but some of the other guys that I was racing with had the days of their life. You know, they loved it. They thought it was the greatest thing. They had a great run because because the heat wasn't oppressing them. For me, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was everything I could do to finish. But, you know, it's funny because I, I, I think I look now at, uh, at the way Boston turned out to be this year. And I think back to that race and I said, well, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was getting you ready for it. You know? Maybe it was getting you ready. Well, <laughs> let's quite a bit that race too. Well, if, for sure. And that, that's what we're going to get to in the, the last sort of five minutes of the discussion here. The, um, uh, so honeymoon over first year, you came to me and I want to frame this, uh, as, as we set up 2018 here, I, I distinctly remember the conversation. It was like, well done, great success. You, you went to Boston. You were consistent across the year. You PR'd in your Olympic distance race. You went to 70.3 worlds for triathlon. Really, really a, a boutique of, uh, of performances. And, uh, and your quest to, was to say, look, I want to build on this. I want to improve. And uh, I want to make sure that I can go to South Africa, the world championships that are coming up this year. And hopefully I can qualify for that, for those in March. And I want to continue to evolve as, a, as an athlete. I'm doing great. Oh, one more thing. I'd love to go and do Boston again. Is that great? You've, uh, you've qualified so we can, but I really want to do the big Sur marathon. And that's two weeks later. And, uh, and I remember you saying that to me as I, I took a step back. So, okay, two marathons, two weeks apart. Uh, you want to qualify just before that at an Ironman 70.3 and you want to call it, and you want to improve in triathlon and make sure that you, uh, that you're heading on to, uh, to 70.3 worlds. Simple. You really make it simple on me. So, so thank you very <laughs> much. And, um, and, and I think this is important as we, as we talk about this. I've mentioned it before, but you are not some genetic freak. And as much as I, I would love to be gushing and say, Hey, you're, you know, you've got the, the lungs of an elephant and you, you, you are strong, you're smart, but I wouldn't say that you're a poster boy of the gifted. And I think that's fair enough. You don't come from an elite background in endurance sports, as we talked about. So the challenge here was optimization. How do we actually yield in many ways the impossible? out of uh out of this uh this concept how do we get out of this so did did taking on a, a half ironman and two marathons back to back did that worry you well it's, it's, it's funny so just to speak to your other point so that the, that the listeners can get a 100 percent picture my father-in-law i mentioned earlier is a, is a was an ironman and, and uh you know he's he's built like the, a traditional triathlete he's about six one and he's about 150 160 so when I first started to get into triathlons and I hired my first coach here in New York City, he knew him and he said to him, he said, listen, he will never be a runner. Look at him. So train him hard on the bike and train him hard on the swim. And, you know, I always remembered that because I really like to run. But in my head, I'm like, well, maybe I'm not a runner. And, you know, fast forward to, to this this challenge. So I, so I hear that there's this challenge that that. Big Sur takes 400 people a year, and if you have to qualify for Boston, and then you can come and run the Big Sur Marathon. 
and they're 13 days apart. So their selling point is it's two marathons in 13 days on two coasts. And so I thought, wow, that's a challenge. Maybe I think I want to get involved in that. So and then I brought it to you and you were not, you know, I mean, again, it's, you could have taken it one way or the other. And you said, okay, you've, you've, you've handed me another challenge. You're going to make me uh, work for my food here. And, uh, you know, I, I think at this point, you know, you and I have been together for, for a few years now, probably three, three years, I think at least. And I believed in the program. You know, I knew I knew I was taking on a lot again, taking on a lot early, but my belief in the program and, um, you know, my my thought that, you know, if I follow, if I execute the workouts, I can execute these races. Mm -hmm. And um, the first of the year was the was the Puerto Rico 70.3. Again, it was favorable conditions for me. It was a good old 90 something degrees. Couldn't have been hotter. And, uh, you know, I was able to qualify for the South Africa worlds this year, which was great. And then, and then we came to Boston and, uh, you know, it was a beautiful Friday and Saturday was beautiful. It was supposed to be a beautiful weekend here. And then Sunday it snowed there and it was 30 and, uh, and Monday it decided that it was going to rain and not stop raining. And it decided that it was going to be, um, as windy as it could be as well. And for those people who have who never run Boston, Boston is, is, you know, Matt, is a point-to-point race. So if you have a headwind, you have a headwind the entire race. And so I thought, okay, you know, another challenge. Now they made the challenge a little bit harder. And, you know, I think in many ways it was, it was, uh, it was good to know that I had another marathon after it and that I wanted to complete the, the challenge because it really kept me focused in, what I would say is, is the most difficult race I've ever participated in. And I, and maybe you can say a few other athletes as well, maybe they give you the same feedback. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think as we, but before you tell us how it, the, the end result, I just want to ask you previous Boston's what, what your, what's your best Boston times that, that you've done? So I've done before we started working together, I did Boston once I ran a three thirty. Um, and then since we've been together, I've got 315, uh, 320, and then then there was this year. And this year, and, and your quest was to qualify for next year, which would have taken a 325, yeah? That's correct. And so um, I knew that I needed a sub 325 again. And you know, really my goal, because I, I was actually coming off the, the – the race in Puerto Rico and you and I had spoken about it, that I kind of really wanted to go for it in Boston, try to break the 315 mark. And then, you know, maybe just kind of do the, the big sir as a, uh, as like a victory lap per se. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned, the, the conditions in Boston did not lend themselves to that. And, and I kind of knew that from the second I started that race and, you know, and, and I think that, you know, just like anything else, you kind of have to, you know, as an athlete, you have to kind of take what the day gives you. And exactly. I knew that that was, you know, not, right. And it was not going to be a PR day. It, it was not. And, and obviously the times across the board and, and it's always great to look at the pros were significantly slower. So you ended up, uh, finishing in. 
323. 323, which, uh, which I think, and I said to you afterwards, I, I think that is your best marathon performance you've ever had. You've been 315 on the same course on that day. I felt like 323 was the best marathon performance you've ever had. Now, before this race, before Boston, what would you have said you were most nervous about? Which one of the two were you nervous about the first one or you're nervous about the second one with Big Sur? I'm sure, surely Big Sur was the one that was. Right. So I was nervous about Big Sur for a few reasons. One is because, you know, we did speak about how, you know, I feel like the program has helped me to recover quickly. But when you talk about recovering quickly to, to toe the line for another marathon in 13 days, you know, that's, that's a lot to ask in recovery. So that was the number one thing. Then the other thing is that Big Sur is, uh, is a very hilly marathon, very hilly. It's, 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 it's a, again, it's another point-to-point uh, course uh, right along the ocean, probably one of the most beautiful races you'll ever see, but also very difficult. So when I was factoring those two things, I thought that, you know, this is going to be it's – a, it's a big ask. It's a big ask because, you know, as, as we've discussed, even – because I was doing two marathons, we still didn't change the program. We never ran more than 14 miles for either of them. And so it was, a, again, you know, as we, we've kind of talked about throughout the podcast, it was a, having a lot of faith in the program and a lot of faith in if I do the work that's asked, I don't need to do any more. And sometimes I think I still sometimes say, do I need to do another? And you say, no, you don't have to. You, you, you know, and... I guess a lot of um, a lot of you know what you know happens is it's mental. You have to if you mentally believe when you start these whatever it is, whatever race I'm doing that you know that it's going to be a quality day and I, and I put the work in and I feel good and, and you and you start and you're not exhausted at the starting line. That's a really good start, I think. I, I think that's absolutely key. And uh, and look as we. As we go to as we go to Big Sur, I, I remember speaking to you the the week between, and I said, "Go to Big Sur, have a great time." Hey, if you go under four hours, it's wonderful. <laughs> and uh, uh, knowing that you are well equipped to go a little faster than that, but basically just go and see what your body can can give you. And and it was an experiment, yeah. And there's no way that either of us could have expectations on the day, but as 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 you mentioned earlier, Big Sur is a challenging course. There is a, you know, if you if you rate a course, there are fast courses. There are uh, very honest courses. Big uh, Boston would be an honest course. It's not a fast course. It's a tough course, and uh, but it's very honest. And then you have Big Sur, and that's a tough course. It's a slow course. You, you did something that actually even surprised your coach. Uh, you. Tell us about the Big Sur day and, and what that was like and probably somewhat surprising to you even. Right. So, you know, it was – the weather was much better. Let's start with that. Um, and, you know, I when I when I got to the starting line or even before when I got to the starting line, the day before, I, um, I met a, a few people that were doing – that had done the race or – and, you know, had done Boston. I don't know if they were necessarily doing the challenge this year. But they said, uh, expect a 10 minute fade. Some people even 15, you know, 10 minutes off of what your Boston time was or 15 minutes slower. But in my mind, I, I felt like we had trained and I was fit enough that if the race conditions had permitted, I probably could have run better than a 315 
in Boston. So I said, maybe, you know, the fact that I had to run Boston a little bit slower because that's what my body was willing to, to give me that day. You know, maybe, maybe I, maybe I, maybe I don't have to be 10 minutes. Maybe I could be five minutes. And, you know, and, the, and then when I got to the starting line, I saw a guy holding a 320 sign. So they have a few paces there and I thought, okay, I'm going to stick with him for a little while. And, you know, when he, when he, when he leaves me, there's, there's a point in the race, um, in Big Sur, it's a, it's a two mile climb from mile 10 to mile 12. And it's, it's one of the toughest climbs you'll find, I think in any race. And that's kind of where there's a separation and, you know, people kind of fall off in that marathon. And so I said, well, I'm going to at least go with him until 10, see how it happens after the, after the hill. And I just, you know, I cleared the hill. I felt good. And I said, well, why don't I just stay with him? And then, the, you know, I got to tw mile 20 and I said, well, maybe I'll just go a little faster than him. Why not? I'm feeling really good at this point. And in mile 23, they give you strawberries. It's delicious. And then you kind of head home. And, and, and my thought was that I didn't necessarily get to give what I wanted to give in Boston. So why not take a little bit and put it into Big Sur? And I wound up finishing uh, 319. So I helped my qualifying time a little bit for, for the next Boston as well. And that was my other thought process. I said, wouldn't it be cool to qualify for Boston in a marathon that's just no one, no one chooses this marathon to qualify for, you know, to use it as a qualifier. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. So that was kind of, you know, my, you know, and again, it's, you know, so you have good races and that was a, that was a good race for me. But I think, you know, the, the thing that you and I spoke about after the race is that, you know, and, and I thanked you because I said that you have to, you know, this was a, a tall ask of you to write this program. And then I executed the program, but more so like it, it just speaks to the fact um, that you, you don't need to do as much as you think you need to do to be successful in these races. And I, and I think that's kind of the point of our conversation, right? Is that, you know, when I was on the bus on the way home and because you get bussed back from uh, the finish Carmel from in California, you go back to Big Sur, so you get bussed back after the race. And someone was asking me about, you know, just kind of talking about training. And I said to them, you know, I've never run more than 14 miles to train for either of these marathons. And they, you know, they called BS on me. And I said, no, it's just, it's not the way that I train. I, I do more biking and I do more swimming and less miles. And, and, I th and I think that, yeah, that's, I mean, we, we come to the key lessons and there's mindset. You talked about that. You've you, you got to have belief in what you're doing. You've got to have confidence to not look over the fence and look at, look at just mimic other programs that may not fit into your life. You have the cross-pollination of using swimming and biking and, um, and the benefits that that provide, which, which for a a busy time staff person, it does two things. Number one, it enables you to chase load and you can limit uh, or reduce slightly the, the really corrosive, at least on the musculoskeletal system components of running. So we haven't been injured for the whole, uh, the whole journey that you've gone through. And then the key, I think, is in, in your case particularly, remembering you've got a very, very busy life in financial services with two children you're an active participant in their life as well of course and making sure that you can have a program that integrates and fits into your life because the thing that i keep hearing coming out from you which i think is really important is i'm arriving at these races feeling fresh and so for me fitness is 
never the limiter. And uh, look, if if you if you retire tomorrow, if you you go and you have all day, yeah, you you do some more training load. But um, but the key is that the thing that people ignore and coaches ignore is what's happening in the outside of life. And and I think what we've managed to weave because this conversation is it's not about all oh, purple patch, purple patch, me me me. It's really aimed to, to, to for us to draw the lessons to say, hey, the methodology, whatever the workouts are. Just make sure that they're effective. And I think that's what you've done a great job of is executing and having the courage to go with it. And so you can say, oh, thank you for the program. But I would say thank you for for having the trust in it and willing to execute it with um, with confidence, which is a, a real skill. So, um, look, I know we've been talking for a long time. We've got to finish with one very quick and dirty thing, Jordan, and that's the quick fire questions. We ask everyone. And this is a challenge for people on the show because most of the most of the people that come on like to talk, just like me. You've got to answer these in either one word or one sentence. So very quickly. You, you, there's no context, there's no background, and it's just a few questions. Are you ready for this? Hit me. All right, don't mess it up. Here we go. Number one, what's the biggest challenge time-starved high performers face? biggest i think it's trying to fit everything in trying to fit everything number number two what's your number one performance habit to help daily energy i try to get at least six hours of sleep a night awesome number three training listen to music focus on the task or troubleshoot work problems listen to music number four what do you wish you had more of? Time. That's a common one. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, training. Fly solo or surround yourself with a crowd? Both. Both, yeah. I mean, you're, you'll remember, you got a great, uh, you got, we talked about the running program. You've also got the, uh, the master swim group, yeah, which is uh, obviously really important. Here's a good one. Uh, three more here. Here's a good one. Name one to two characteristics of an elite performer that you see across disciplines. I think number one is focus. And number two is, uh, I'm failing in number two. Focus is a good one. Two more. And, this, and second, execution. Execution. Good man. All right. Here we go. Two more. Here's one. Who's been your biggest mentor? My parents. Awesome. And the last one, what's your number one tip for travel? Sleep on the plane and don't drink on the plane. Don't drink on the plane. That's a good one. Well, awesome. I Thank you so much, Jordan. This is um, firstly, good luck for the rest of the year. You are not done yet. Laziness will not be tolerated and you still have lots of work to go. So, while this is going to be probably up in Times Square with your banner with a, a million downloads to your wonderful interview, I don't want you to get a big head on this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, to South Africa as well. I think that's going to be uh, a great race. It is going to be a great race out there. And, and I hope that us sharing our story and your journey can can shift a lens or two and uh, and be a catalyst for people to become 
smarter, healthier, and ultimately high performers. So I really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you very much. Well, there it is, a great discussion with Jordan, always fun to chat to him. And look, Jordan is obviously a convert to the Purple Patch Method, but I think his story still provides so many lessons for you as you're going to apply, perhaps with your own methodology. My headline news for this lesson, realize triathlon is swim, bike, run. It's not just three sports. It is one sport with three disciplines. And so if you are a triathlete, realize this when you're approaching your running training. It cannot be designed in isolation. Secondly, the value of arriving to races fit and healthy, but really fresh. It's so critical to success. And ultimately, fitness is seldom the limiter to performance. As a recreational but driven athlete, be willing to think outside of the box to remain passionate, healthy, and progressing. In our story today, Jordan used swimming and cycling to prepare for his marathons, and he was never limited by the fact that so many athletes fear, am I gonna be ready, am I gonna be fit enough? He had the resilience, but he got there through untraditional means. And finally, realize this, The vast majority of time-starved athletes spend lots of their time obsessing over the stress of training load. But stress is stress is stress. And ultimately, the biggest challenge that most of them face is everything that arrives from life stress. And so today's story is a validation of why a dynamic and flexible approach to training is so key. We have to integrate it into your life. I hope you enjoyed. We've got a couple of crackers coming up over the next few weeks, so stay tuned. Here's what's coming up. Boston. We're going to go deep with Des Linden as well as her husband, Ryan. Des was recently the Boston Marathon champion, and we're going to talk about performance, adversity, coaching, and her progression over the years that's what's taken her to the Boston Marathon. We're also going to talk to a survivor of the Santa Rosa Friars who ran for his life, a life that he so nearly lost and now is on a performance journey of his own. And finally, we're going to talk to Erin Taylor from Jazz Yoga, the preeminent expert in performance yoga. And we're going to be discussing recovery, meditation, and how you can integrate yoga into a time-starved life to help boost your performance across all disciplines. So yes, there's lots to come. Stay listening and please keep shouting from the rooftops. Share, I don't care, carry a pigeon, whatever it takes but really appreciate it when you share and tell your friends if you're enjoying the podcast. Until next time, take care.